Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all here this morning. It's uh, a pleasure to be bringing God's Word to you. I, uh, as always, am appreciative of Pastor Joe uh, to give me this opportunity to, to preach. And I'm still getting used to being up here on this, up, up high on this pulpit. Um, I'm still blessed. I'm used to finally kind of being up there with the worship team, but um, I just love seeing the people of God to come and, and hear God's Word on Sundays, and I can see you better than ever from up here. So it's, it's great. It's great. Well, as Joe mentioned, uh, as he's given me occasion to preach, uh, we've been studying through the book of Colossians, and we will be uh, continuing our study uh, this morning, beginning in chapter 2. But uh, before we begin, I'd, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We'll begin reading uh, in, from verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. John writes, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here in this passage, uh, the Lord Jesus describes his heart as a shepherd. And it should serve as a a constant comfort to those who believe in Christ to know that he is the good shepherd. And that he cares for you. And that he will protect you. And that he was willing and indeed did lay down his life for you. For his sheep. When danger comes, those who are frauds, those who have no interest in it, flee when the wolf comes. Yet our shepherd stands strong and protects us. He cares for us. And after his death and resurrection, upon his ascension to heaven, the Lord sought fit to appoint under shepherds. To carry on the job in his place until he returns again. These under shepherds or pastors are called to follow his example, to instruct the people of God in love, to care for them, to protect the people of God. Indeed, the bar is is set high, and certainly no pastor can uh, meet it perfectly or come anywhere close. Yet, with hard work and discipline, And sacrifice and love, good shepherds labor on, keeping watch over your souls as if, as ones who have to give an account for you. So says Hebrews 13, 17. And no one understood this more, I think, than the Apostle Paul did. 
And this, this understanding of, of giving an account for the sheep that God had placed in his care, for caring for the flock of God, for protecting the flock of God, uh, was an ever-present thought on his mind. And it's these thoughts that uh, he turns to in, in Colossians chapter 2, and it's uh, on this topic of, of caring for the church and, and what, it, what does a healthy church look like? What does a healthy church look like? What are the ingredients for a healthy church? Because this was one of the primary concerns and cares that the Apostle Paul had. And so, turn with me, if you haven't, to Colossians chapter 2. And to gain uh, just some understanding of the context and by way of review, I know it's been uh, a number of weeks since we were in Colossians. But Paul had spent the final verses of of chapter 1 describing uh, the features of his ministry. He talked about his mindset and how he could rejoice in the sufferings uh, for Christ's sake because they knew that he knew that the, the sufferings were not in vain and they were for God's glory and the building up of the church. And he, he described what his mission was to make the word of God fully known to all who hadn't heard it. And to uh, be the apostle to the Gentiles, those who uh, up until now had been, in a sense, the outcasts and separated from the kingdom of God, but through God's perfect and divine will, had been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so Paul's mission was to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to minister to them. And his message was the gospel, the gospel of Christ, that salvation is found through him and him alone, no matter who you are or where you come from. And he talked about this mystery of Christ, that when you become a believer, the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, literally comes down and dwells permanently within you. And he talked about his might. That all the, the hard work and accomplishments, everything he did was ultimately not him, but through the power of Christ who was working through him to accomplish his will. And it's this understanding of, of, of might, um, he says in verse 29 of, of, of Colossians 1, that uh, to fulfill his ministry, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And it's this idea of struggling that causes uh, Paul to springboard off and, and to discuss uh, our passage as we come to it in Colossians chapter 2. So let us begin. Colossians 2, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin to study his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, 
revealing to us who you are, Lord, and instructing us in righteousness. We thank you for appointing men like Paul and the apostles who continue to serve as instructors and tutors today for us. We pray, Lord, that your blessing would be upon us and that you would be worshipped as we study your word and, and seek to obey it and apply it to our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins, and he moves from the general areas of his ministry to the specific. You see, the church at Colossae was, was different than many of the other churches that Paul had interacted with. Um, although the church at Colossae knew Paul through their pastor Epaphras, and had probably had heard of the mighty works and the miracles that he had done um, throughout the, the Roman Empire... They were unlike other churches like Ephesus or Corinth or now Rome in the, in the sense that they had never actually met Paul face to face or most of them had not. And so from their perspective, it might seem, I don't know, uh, this lack of personal uh, relationship with Paul. These other churches had known Paul. Paul had visited them. In fact, he had planted most of them. And yet this church was not like that. Yet in chapter 2, in the beginning verses, Paul makes it clear that they were very important to him. And he personally struggled specifically for them. As well as those in Laodicea and all who hadn't seen him face to face. And Laodicea was just a thriving city just northwest of, of Colossae. And there was another uh, a neighboring city as well called the Hierapolis. And it kind of served as a a type of tri-cities of that area, if you will. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says that he struggled for them. And this word for struggled, um, uh, it's the same word he uses in, in 129, and the Greek word agona, it's where we get our, our English word to agonize. And it, and it describes somebody giving a strenuous effort as, as those such as in the Olympic Games would give to win their event. He struggled for them. And in our English, when we say struggled, we often uh, times use it in a sense in a bad way. And Paul is not using it in a bad way here. He's using it in the sense that he's caring for them. And so he, he's agonizing, he's, he's, he's exerting effort on their behalf because he cares for them. Which brings up the, the obvious question, how did he agonize? How did he struggle for them? Well, he did so in the very best way that he could which was through prayer, which was through prayer. And we know that he was praying for him because he tells us as much. If you just look over to uh, chapter one, verse three, Paul writes to them, we always give thanks. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Then popping down to verse nine. And so from the day we heard, heard of their faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul was in constant prayer for them. And it wasn't a general prayer, it was specific prayers. But as we read this letter, we see that there was no major controversy going on. Certainly they faced issues. But for the most part, the, the church at, at Colossae was in good standing. In fact, we read in, in the beginning that, that, that Paul was pleased to hear about how they were developing and how they were growing. 
So what was Paul struggling for them about? What was he agonizing in prayer for them about? They were not like uh, the church in Corinth or in Galatia that were constantly facing divisive or, or sinful issues or controversies that Paul had to deal with. So what was it? Well, Paul's struggles reveal simply this, that he had the heart of a pastor. And he knows that all churches, no matter who you are or where you are and what time you are, are going to face spiritual opposition. It's a fact. And if you're not careful, sin can easily creep in to discourage, to cause division. False teaching can infiltrate and undermine the health and the purpose of the body. Every church is susceptible to this. And so Paul cares for them, especially in a sense, I think, because he, he hadn't met them. And, and so although he, we see him writing here, he, he's not just agonizing them over in prayer. He's writing to them and giving them instruction and encouragement. But he cares for them as a church body and he wants them to be a healthy church body. And so Paul, in the beginning of chapter 2, he outlines what a healthy church looks like and what he is praying for them and struggling for them about. And at the end of this passage, he, he gives them a pretty good summary of what he desires. And in, in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's what he desired. You see, it's wise for churches, it's wise for us here today to constantly evaluate our health. To compare how we're living and what we're doing and, and any programs that we have or our heart attitudes to what Scripture says and, and, and having the right attitude um, for God. Because before you know it, even if you don't mean to, uh, things can get out of order. It makes me think of when I was younger and, and cleaning my room. You know, I'd, I'd spend like a Saturday, I'd, I'd, I'd dust it, I'd, I'd check under the bed because I know my mom always... Uh, it depends. Sometimes she, she'd know that... It, you know, sometimes it'd be like, is this a closet and under the bed checking day, mom, or is it not? Because I need to budget my time. <laughs> but you clean your room, you tidy it up, you get it all put together, and you're like, okay, if you're like me, all right, from now on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just keep it clean. That's the easy thing to do. And then you don't have to spend an entire Saturday cleaning it up. But then one day you, you get home and you're tired and you just want to relax. And so you, you, you put your socks on you know, you just kind of leave them on the floor. Everything else is clean and the socks are there. It's no big deal. It's just socks. All, you know, you'll, you'll put them in the hamper um, later today. And yet a day later, they're still sitting there. And, and so are some uh, school books or papers or things that you have that are, were on your desk or that you were studying and they got left on the floor. And then there's that laundry that you wanted to fold, but you just didn't have time for it. And then there's the, the dinner plates and the cups that you left. And, and before you know it, you walk into your room and you look and things are in disarray. And you're like, what happened? And your mom comes up and said, I thought you were going to keep your room clean. And you say, so did I. Life happens and time goes. And, and if you're not constantly evaluating, even though you don't mean it to, even though you're not purposely setting out to make your room dirty... You have to evaluate it to make sure that things are being kept so that they're in good order. So that they're in good order. And every church needs this and every Christian needs this. You, you need this. 
And this is why Paul struggled for them. Because he wanted them to be in good order and firm in their faith in Christ. And we have his instruction divinely preserved in God's word today because, you know, this is the Lord's desire for you and for us as a church body. To be growing, to be healthy, to be glorifying him. And so what does this look like? What does a healthy church look like? What are these qualities? And, and this is not a comprehensive list that, that, that Paul gives. These are just some general important qualities of what a healthy church looks like and does. And so through this passage, uh, Paul provides us four important qualities of a healthy church so that you will be found to be in good order and firm in your faith in Christ. Four important qualities of a healthy church so that you will be found to be in good order and firm in your faith in Christ. And the first one is this. An important quality of a healthy church is that the believers are strong in heart. Strong in heart. Paul struggled for the Colossians who had not seen his face. And he, and he, and he begins and it says this. He says at the end of verse 1, um, I struggle for you and Laodicea and for all those who had not seen me face to face. Why? That their hearts may be encouraged. See, Paul begins with, with, with the, the, the spiritual outlook and attitude of the believers. This was a concern of his. This is what he was praying about. The word encouragement comes from the Greek word parakaleo, uh, uh, and, and it has a, a range of meanings. It can mean to uh, comfort or exhort or encourage. It literally means to call to one side. And actually, in, in modern Greek, parakaleo, uh, it's just the word for please and you're welcome. But it's kind of a, an entreaty. It, it, it has a range of words, in a sense, like our English word encouragement does as well. And Paul uses it in each of these ranges of meanings throughout the New Testament. But when he uses that word with the word heart, what he is meaning is it for them to be strengthened at heart. Strengthened in heart. This is the type of encouragement um, that gives you a, a renewed sense of strength and attitude and outlook. And, and we've all been there. Maybe one of you have, have come home and just had a, a difficult time at work. Maybe you're having troubles with a, uh, your boss or a coworker. Maybe you're a student and you're just struggling through a class. And so your parents or a friend of yours gives you some, some counsel and prays for you. And you just talk it out and then... Afterwards, you, you have a sense of encouragement, a renewed strength. Like, I can get through this. It's okay. Things will be all right. Uh, you have uh, sometimes even more of a, a go get this You've become stronger at heart. And sometimes it doesn't have to be in a bad situation. Sometimes it, it can just be from uh, receiving instruction. You know, you, you listen to a sermon or you read a book and afterwards you're encouraged, you're motivated to do something. You know, I'm going to be more involved in evangelism. You know what, I, I'm going to be a, I'm going to, man, this just encouraged me. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do better at my quiet times. Or I'm going to work at being a better husband or wife or father or what it might be. But that sense of encouragement is a renewed strength to do something. And that's what Paul's desire was for the church, to be strong at heart. 
Because we need this encouragement. Do not be fooled by so many of the books and and teachings of many pastors out there. The truth of the matter is the Christian life is hard. It's not easy. And anybody who tells you differently is misleading you. Yes, there's blessings. Yes, there's joy. Yes, things become easier. But the Christian life is hard. The Christian life is hard. True believers face lifelong difficulties, not just temporary ones. The world mocks you and mocks your faith. They're going to hate your message. They're going to oppose essentially everything you stand for. And if that's not bad enough, you also have the remnants of your sinful flesh to deal with. That's not easy. Because now if you're a Christian, the Lord has regenerated your heart. You have a, an understanding of what is right and wrong. And yet the remnants of your flesh, they still desire sin. And so you, you have to deny them. And it's hard. And with time it gets easier, but there's that ever-changing aspect of sin that we have to fight. Or maybe times it's the delights of the world start enticing you. You think, man, I, I could... I could buy some new golf clubs. I could get that new TV. I, I could maybe get a better car or more things for my home if I just didn't quite give as much to church. Do they really need that? I could spend more time watching football or golfing or shopping if I didn't go to Bible study in the evening. Or I could sleep a little bit more if I, I don't need to go to Sunday school. Or I don't really want to go to youth group. Oftentimes we all face those kind of temptations. And if that's not it, then you still go, but you get in this rut and the joy of serving just kind of becomes out of obligation and you're just doing it to do it because they need it and there's not the sense of joy or passion. And so Paul was struggling for this church and it's a reminder for you today to be strong at heart. To have the ever-present motivation and joy that your faith is not in vain. And that life, pursuing the Savior and being conformed into His image and serving Him is worth it. And it matters. And it is good and fulfilling. This is a quality of a healthy church. To be strong in heart. To have a passion to serve the Lord. And to build up others to do the same and encourage them. Because how and why you serve the Lord begins in your heart. In your heart. One commentator writes, Once a man's heart has been thoroughly won over and established in grace, the entire person has become the object object of God's marvelous transforming power. For the heart is the fulcrum of feeling and faith as well as the mainspring of words and actions. If you are encouraged in your heart, it's going to flow in the things you think about and the actions you do. And Paul understood this. And so he he struggled for them. He wanted them to be a a healthy church. And it began with being strong at heart. And being encouraged in their faith. Being encouraged in their faith. The second quality of a healthy church is solidarity and love. Solidarity and love. Paul writes, Colossians 2, 2, 
that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. A necessary quality for a healthy church is love. Is love. It's not knowledge. It's not growth in numbers. It's not having finally a church facility. Those things are not bad, but those things are not what will perfect a church. And Paul says as much. Actually, just if you turn the page and look over to Colossians 3.14. After describing a number of very important characteristics of what a Christian life should look like, he says in 3.14, And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The church is not made of wood or, or building materials. It's made of people. People who are different. People who uh, have uh, different jobs, who have different uh, likes and different backgrounds and different opinions. And what binds us all together is our love. Our love for the Savior, certainly, but also for your love for one another. For your love for one another. It is important. When I was in college, uh, a friend of mine uh, in the summertime, uh, she started collecting T-shirts. She'd ask us, hey, do you have any like, T-shirts you don't want anymore that aren't you know, too beat up or whatever? And she, she would gather them or she would go to like, thrift shops or Value Village. And, and she spent the summer collecting T-shirts. And I, I didn't think anything of it at the time, really. I just assumed she was gathering T-shirts uh, for uh, you know, missions or to, uh, for her church drive or something like that. But then one day, towards the end of the summer, a group of us went over to her house and we walked into her living room and we saw all the t-shirts that uh, she had collected or what used to be the t-shirts because she had cut them up. And she had arranged them uh, according to, to various colors and logos uh, beautifully and she had sewn them together into this t-shirt quilt. It was like awesome. i never seen anything like that. I don't know, maybe some of you have either done that or seen that, but it was cool. All these t-shirts that, uh, from the outset, for the most part, had nothing really in common, had been arranged and ordered and sewn together so that they were now one beautiful, unified quilt. The church is much like this, isn't it? You, though different and, and, and seemingly... Uh, Uncommon to many of the others in the church, God has chosen you and arranged you according to how He desired and He knit you together into one church. And the bond that keeps us together is love. It's love. And so we too are to be a a unified body that amazes the world when they see us. When they see how different we are and, and, and different backgrounds and, and how God has worked in our life and yet we are unified together, that should amaze the world and draw people to the power of Christ. It is the bond that helps us to uh, show preference to others and be patient and look out for the cares and interests for others. It's love. And it makes it clear to unbelievers that you are a Christian. Doesn't, that's what Jesus says. John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A quality of a healthy church is love. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I get it. That, that was good. I, that's, that's encouraging. But I don't really feel like we, we're lacking in love. It's not like I'm looking around saying, oh, man, that, that, that guy is just hard to love. I, gotta, I, need, some, I need Paul to struggle. I need the, the pastors to struggle for me for that. I don't really feel like we struggle too much with love. Well, the, the truth of the matter is that neither were the Colossians. In fact, we, we read in, in Colossians 1.4 that they were known for their love. Paul writes that they were giving thanks for them. Verse 1.4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. And yet now we see in chapter 2 that Paul was struggling for them, praying for them, desiring that they would have love, being knit together in love. Why? Because, again, without careful attention, with time going and, and, and the cares of life creeping in, the demands of work and demands of family, it's easy for love to grow dull. It's easy for love to grow dull, isn't it? And it gives Satan a foothold. And it's so easy for little things to cause controversies or to bother us or to cause conflict. And so Paul's desire was that as a church, we would be constantly being renewing our love for one another. Is this what we are known for? Is this what you are known for? Is this what visitors see when they come and see us? Or the world sees when we are out doing barbecues or harvest ministry projects? Is that what they see in us? Our love for one another. Your love for one another. It's an important quality of a healthy church. And love is not the only healthy quality that the church must be unified in. Paul continues and he, he gives a third quality of a healthy church. Colossians 2.2 2, He struggled that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. The third quality is, of a healthy church is that they are sure in their understanding or they are sound in doctrine. I couldn't decide which one to go with, so I thought I'd give you both. Sound in doctrine. If you're sound in doctrine, you're going to be sure in your understanding. And if you're sure in your understanding, then you're probably going to be sound in doctrine. So I figured either one would be fine. A healthy church has sound doctrine. But it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. This is the quality that's the driving force for all the others. The more you understand Christ, the more your hearts will be encouraged, and the more your hearts are encouraged, the more you will have love for one another. And so Paul here, he says that he desired for them to have full assurance and understanding of God's mystery. And here, Paul goes again talking about this mystery. The first time he, he spoke about it, it was in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, 
where he talked about the first mystery is that Christ is in you. That Christ is literally, when you become uh, saved, the Spirit of Christ comes down and literally dwells within you, which is the hope of glory. A mystery is not a, a secret. All a, the mystery, when the New Testament speaks of it, is just a new revelation that in the past was not fully understood. Was not fully understood. And this new, this next mystery that talks about is Christ himself, who Christ was. Certainly in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament speaks of Christ and the coming Messiah. We know this because Christ uh, filled, uh, fulfilled many prophecies, fulfilled many prophecies. But they didn't quite understand that the Messiah would literally be God himself the Son, the second member of the Trinity who was co-equal with God in power and glory and in every regard. That was not fully understood completely until the coming and ministry of Christ. And all of that. Certainly, now we can look back to the Old Testament and see where it's taught, but for the New Testament church, most of this was, was new revelation that they... Had been, that had been revealed to them through Christ. And so this mystery that Paul, he, he was struggling for them so that they would understand the riches and glory of this mystery, which, is, which was Christ, in whom were hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because Christ is God, there is no one greater or nothing greater to know or to understand than God Himself. There's nothing deeper than God. There's nothing richer than God. There's no greater uh, fulfillment than knowing God or no uh, greater assurance than knowing that you have been reconciled to the living God through Jesus Christ. That through Christ we can know the living God in whom we live and move and have our being. So Paul's desire for them is that they would have this, this sound doctrine of, 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 of a sure understanding of who they were in Christ and what that meant for their life. And he wanted them to grow in their knowledge of Christ and, and try to, to mine out the riches that are knowing Christ and the transforming power that his teachings and his ministries and the word of God can have on your life and in the life of the church body. You see, the world is seeking the key to understanding life. They're trying to unlock the, the mystery of, of why we're here and what it means to have happiness or wisdom or joy. In fact, I, I looked this week on the, the New York Times bestseller list for this, uh, for this week. This month, I'm not sure. It was the most current one. And, and uh, in the, the category of advice and how-to, you know, apart from all the books on diet and, and eating right, but you'll find books like this, The Happiness Project, which is described as finding happiness through science, ancient wisdom, and pop culture. Life Code, How to Win in the Real World. Or The Secret, which has been out for years and many of you have heard of that, which explains how the law of attraction is the key to getting what you want in life. No, it's not. No, it's not. But the world is seeking to find it there. And although they didn't have books like this in Colossa, they still faced 
similar challenges. For them, it was this belief uh, called Gnosticism, which is uh, just derives from the, the Greek word uh, knowledge. And it was this belief that had actually infiltrated many of the churches in, in, uh, in Asia Minor and Greece. And these false teachers would say that, that God is so big and mysterious that there's this hidden and deep knowledge of God that's only revealed to the spiritual elite. And then it's the spiritual elite that then dispenses it uh, to the disciples. And it, you can really only know God if you have this deep, hidden um, relationship and there's this, these hidden meanings. And so Paul struggled with the church that they wouldn't be influenced by that because it's not right. All the wisdom and spiritual understandings that you need don't come from some guru, don't come from some deep, hidden, secret knowledge of God. They're straightforward through Christ. He says, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding. And the, the wording sounds a little mystic. I get it. I mean, you, you might be reading like, okay, I'm, I'm reading this and it's just weird. There's, first we have these mysteries. Now we have the, the wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. You know, what's up with this? Why, why isn't it just straightforward? Well, Paul's intent isn't to make it sound mystic. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's straightforward. That's the point. You don't need to go to some sort of spiritual uh, expert advisor who's going to speak to you the deep mysteries from God. You don't need a self-help book. There's no Bible code or secret numbers in Scripture that are going to give you the, the secrets to life's questions. No, it's just simply straightforward. They're found in Christ and in the Word of God. That's it. You, you needn't look further than that. Now, certainly you come to church and you learn from pastors who open up the Word of God and, and teach, but it's the same Word of God that you have. You can read it and check for yourself. In fact, I encourage you to do so. Every time you hear something, is this what the Word of God says? The riches of Christ are so great that you can spend a lifetime exploring them and, and barely scratch the surface. All wisdom and understanding is hidden in Christ. And what does it mean to be hidden in Christ? Well, it, it doesn't mean that you need a secret map to find it. it, it I think it means just to, that it, they've been stored up within. And, I, and D- David conveys a similar uh, a notion in Psalm 119.11 when he says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. David wasn't hiding his, God's word in his heart so that he needed a map to find it later. He was storing them up and hiding them in his heart so that they were there, that he had them, that they were impacting his life. Wisdom and understanding are stored up in Christ and they are there. Certainly, it takes effort to pursue it and learn and read and study and grow, but they're there for anyone to discover. The quality of a healthy church is that they are knit together in their understanding of sound doctrine of Christ. Do you have this assurance? Do you have this assurance? Because the riches and wisdom and knowledge of Christ they don't just stay at church on Sunday. They, they, they carry over and pour forth into all the aspects of your life, don't they? In your job, in your marriage, in your relationships. The knowledge and understanding of Christ impacts everything you do. 
And so Paul struggles. They, they would grow to understand this and grow in their firmness in their knowledge of Christ. And this was a great concern of Paul. And you read all of his letters and, he, and he's always exhorting and teaching and correcting and, and explaining more about who Christ is so that the church would fully understand. Why? Because they were going to be tested. You will be tested as well. You will be tested as well. How? Well, Paul continues, and he, and he describes the fourth quality of a healthy church. He says, The knowledge of God, which is Christ, and verse 3, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The fourth quality of a healthy church is that it is safe from false teaching. A healthy church is safe from false teaching. And this is a constant struggle for any pastor. A constant concern and prayer for any pastor that no one amongst their flock will be duped or misled by false teaching. The phrase, delude uh, uh, with plausible arguments or per, you know, uh, persuasive arguments, or your version might say, um, uh, deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. That's all one word in the Greek, and it, it just talks about being led astray by smooth talk. It's a false message, but the, whoever's saying it knows how to, to make it smooth and fine-sounding, and, and he knows how to lead people astray. He knows how to lead people astray. I, I was, about a week ago, I was talking to a man uh, at a park who was just before Sophia's swim lessons, and uh, Leanne started talking with this man, and then um, I walked over and started talking with him. Nice guy. He was a, he was a, a businessman uh, who was involved with like sport clubs, and he was very pro-church, and he started telling me all about how they were involved with supporting churches and, and getting the word out and kind of social work as well. And so he asked me, you know, how, how big is your church? And, and uh, I told him, and he's like, oh, that, you know, maybe we could, we could help you out. You, you could get ten times that many. And I said, well, you know, actually, I don't know how I could, I don't know how we could shepherd that many people. And he said, oh, you know what, that's good. You know, you're right. In fact, recently, the elders at Joel Olstein's church had mandated that the church should not be more than 4,000 people big. Because they read in Scripture and they saw that at one point in time, Jesus fed 5,000. But then the next time, he, he reevaluated and, and only fed 4,000 people. And so that was the Word of God teaching that a church should, know, should not be any bigger than 4,000 people. And I said, what? <laughs> There's a lot of strange beliefs out there. There's a lot of strange beliefs out there, and some of them are a little more smooth than others. But one of Satan's most effective tools are convincing teachers who advocate false doctrine. That's what he uses. And it was a constant threat then, and it's a constant threat now. And so, you need to be on your guard. You need to be on your guard. One of the big concerns for Paul and any good shepherd is that 
that they stay safe from false teaching. They stay safe from false teaching. And I, I hope you can kind of see the progression. A healthy church is strong and encouraged in heart. And as they're strong and encouraged in heart to, to fulfill God's call, they, they love one another. They love one another because they're sure in their understanding of who Christ is and how uh, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the more sure their understanding of who Christ is, the less susceptible they are from false teaching, the safer they are from false teaching. I wish I could tell you all of the different ways that false teaching creeps in the church, but I can't because it's always ever-changing. The big ones we know. Those ones are easy. It's the subtle ones that sound good. Those are the tricky ones. And so a healthy church is always looking to God's word, comparing what they're hearing to what the word of God says and, 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 and talking to each other and talking to their Bible study leader and asking their pastors and saying, okay, wow, is this the truth? These are the qualities and ingredients of a healthy church. How do you measure? How do we measure? Paul finishes and he, he loved this church. He hadn't met them, but he loved them. And his desire for them was to be a healthy, thriving church that was used for God's glory. At the end, as we, we talked about in the beginning, in verse 5, he, he says, I don't want you to be deceived by false teaching, but instead, in verse 5, chapter 2, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You see, Paul wrote this under house arrest in Rome. He, he, at the time, he couldn't go visit them. But that didn't limit his care and love for them. He cared for them and he, and he longed to rejoice and to hear whether it was through word of Epaphras again or maybe someday visiting them. He longed to hear of their good order and their firmness in their faith in Christ. And he was confident that his struggles and his prayers and his concerns were not in vain. And he says he rejoiced to hear good news. To hear of their good order and firmness in faith. And the good order and firmness, actually, they're, they're both military terms. The word good order is uh, taxis. We get our English word taxonomy from it. And it, and it referred to uh, the, the rank and file of soldiers who were drawing up for battle. They were there. They were prepared. They were where they were supposed to be and they were ready. The word firm or stability referred to the, a solid part or the strength of an army. Paul wanted them in good order and strong. That's what a healthy church is. It's not perfect because it's made up of imperfect people. But through the power of Christ working within us, we can do our best to constantly evaluate our order and how strong we are. That was Paul's desire for this church and it's the Lord's desire for you and our church. That we are prepared for spiritual battle and that we are strong, strong enough to meet the enemy through the power of Christ. And how is this done? By being strong in heart, having solidarity and love, being sure in your understanding through sound doctrine, and keeping yourself safe from false teaching. 
I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning, just to evaluate your own heart, evaluate where we are at. And it's my prayer, and I'm sure Pastor Joe's prayer as well, that God would grant us grace to grow in these areas that we might seek to honor and glorify God together as a church body. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this morning. First, Lord, we give thanks through the hope we have in your Son, through the forgiveness of sins, that through his death we can be reconciled to you. And now we can be different from the world, Lord, who is lost and and without hope in this world, Lord. I pray for Living Hope Bible Church that we would be a strong and healthy church, growing in our love for one another and our knowledge and love for you, Lord, as we seek to serve you. Father, be with us, be amongst us, and help us to grow and honor you for your will and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.